Welcome to the Adventures in Arting podcast. This is episode number 71, Jane Davies' Abstract Painting, recorded on August 8, 2017. Today's broadcast is sponsored by Van Gogh's Ear. The vibrancy of Van Gogh's paintings is only half his story. Combining the letters Van Gogh wrote to his brother with chamber and vocal works, Ensemble for the Romantic Century's Van Gogh's Ear brings the tormented creativity of Van Gogh to life. Playing at the Pershing Square Signature Center in New York City through September 10th. Podcast listeners save 50% with code ADVENTURES at romanticcentury.org. My name is Eileen Schubalzer, and with me is my co-host, Julie Fafan Balzer. Hi, Mom. Hi, Julie. How are you? I'm good. You must be tired because you're just back from uh, a week in Florida. I am, and the real issue was I got sick while I was there. And, you know, uh, when you're sick on the road and you have to teach and stuff, it's never an easy thing. But hit it well, and I actually don't think anybody knew. So thank God for medicine. Well, you actually hit the jackpot because you had two simultaneous unrelated sicknesses. I did. So I got a cold at the same time that I had a bout of food poisoning. So it was just, I'm super lucky jackpot winner. Um, But some, but I was going to say, the good news is when you're making art, everybody's in such a good mood that they don't notice. (laughs) And you're a fine actress. There you go. And actually, our guest today is someone who knows a lot about traveling, who probably has some stories of being sick and ill while teaching because she teaches a lot. Uh, Jane Davies is back, and she was on the podcast about two years ago. If you don't know Jane, she's a full-time artist working in painting and collage. She offers a lot of workshops all over, um, and she focuses on developing a personal and playful approach to art making. So welcome, Jane. Thank you, Julie. I didn't uh, realize you had been sick while you were teaching. Uh, Sorry to hear that. You sound never fun. Yeah, yeah. Have, have you um, ever been sick while you were teaching? You know, I think I've been pretty lucky. A couple of times I've been like on the tail end of something where I can deal with it fine. Um, but no, I've never been like really flat out sick when I'm teaching. But, you know, it'll happen if I keep teaching. Right. I was going to say, you also you also live a very healthy lifestyle. So maybe I live a more unhealthy kind of lifestyle. I think I must have touched something on all those airplane rides I really shouldn't have. No, I don't know. I think I'm just as susceptible as anyone. But uh, what back in the day when I was a potter doing craft shows, this is uh, late 90s and early 2000s, I did have a couple of memorable times when I was doing a craft show and really sick with that bad cold and that was pretty exhausting um so far in my teaching career i've been lucky uh, fingers crossed yeah no kidding Uh, so one of the reasons i wanted to have jane on the podcast besides the fact that she is always a good person to talk to about art i think that people who teach art know how to talk about art in some really good and important ways Um, is that Jean has a brand new book out called um, Abstract Painting the Elements of Visual Language. Mm -hmm. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the book for people who don't know anything about it? Yeah. um, Thanks. The book, I wrote it uh, really to my students. Um, 
I examine visual language piece by piece, uh, lines, shapes, mass, color, pattern, texture. Um, and I, I wrote it because I, I found that when I was teaching, I'd ask students to uh, make some observations about, about their work or work in process. And people could not do it. <laughs> and so I had to come up with a language to prompt people to look at their own work. And in, in this kind of investigation, I realized I can't do it either. <laughs> it's so much easier to make observations about someone else's work. Um, and in your own work, especially if you've just done it, um, you're still kind of in the, your head is still kind of in the process. And so the place that people immediately go when asked to make observations about their work is, well, first I did this and then I did that. And, and then I wanted to do this and this is really what I had in mind, but it turned out this other way and, um, kind of taking us through the mental process and the technical process. And I really realized that that's kind of, I think, a stumbling block because unless you can sort of see what's on the page for what it is, um, it's a little harder to make choices about how to move forward on a piece. Yeah, I was going to say one of the things I know that I do when I teach all the time is talk to people about how if you cannot verbalize mm -hmm. what is going on with your work, mm -hmm. then you cannot change it or fix it. And so oftentimes what I find is I'll say to people, well, what do you think? Like, where is it right now? And they'll be like, oh, this sucks. And of course, I'm always like, well, that that's not helpful. You know, yeah. if you don't like it, then what are what are what is it that you don't like? Do you not like the colors? Do you not? And I think that to me is what you're talking about when you say giving people the the language skills or the words to talk about it. Yeah. And I even get um, further away than that. If someone says, well, I don't like it. Um or I don't like this part, or I like this part, I don't like this part, um, I try to get them to just try to make observations that don't have evaluation attached to them, that aren't, oh, well, this part's good, or that part doesn't work, but there's a circle here over on the left kind of hovering away from the edge of the page. There's another circle, oh, it's the same size, it's sort of overlapping the bottom edge of the page on the right or something like that, like really just a description of what's there and how the elements are related to each other sort of spatially on the page. And then I ask them also to, um, you know, notice their response, notice a kind of gut response like, Ooh, yeah, mm, this one works or, um, Oh, that line makes me feel really edgy. <laughs> you know, just sort of, uh, noticing gut responses without getting into a kind of um, evaluative mode. Let's talk about that evaluative mode because I think that is one of the number one issues I hear people come into class and I know that I struggle with myself too. You know, what, how, how long has, have you been working on that in your, in your own work, I guess I would say, in your own process? I don't really know because it came up in teaching. Uh, and then I, you know, things come up in teaching because it's so much easier to tell other people what to do, right? <laughs> yes. Um, and then it gives me the opportunity, once I've kind of given voice to it in, in a teaching context, to turn that on myself. And so um, 
it's probably just been a couple of years that I've been really harping on this in, in classes. So that's when I've really noticed it for myself. And I do notice that as I'm painting, I am mostly in a non-evaluative mode. Somehow I've managed to get there. And I know I've not always been that way. Um, but it's, I mean, I really am sort of approaching it with a kind of curiosity and what happens if I do this and what happens if I do that and then paint over a bunch of it and, oh, I kind of wrecked it. Oh, isn't that interesting? So now I start somewhere else or what can I do? And it's really a, a curiosity journey and not, a, oh, yeah, this is good or I don't want to cover that because I like it Um mode but yeah it hasn't always been thus and do you find that that has changed the finished work or oh. and or the process yeah absolutely I get way more fun work now I have more fun working and I think my work is more fun um yeah I mean it doesn't come easily but I am so not attached to any particular piece Whereas I used to be, and I think that evaluation stuff um, may be born of the idea that once you start a piece, you must finish it, and it should be good. And I never start a piece. I start a bunch of pieces and play with them. And, and I, I, you know, some of them might turn out to be finished works of art, and that's like a bonus. <laughs> So for me, if I really let the process be um, primary, then the product ends up better. But I just never know which piece is going to end up being finished, and that's fine with me. So when uh, I, I work also on multiple things at a time, uh, mm -hmm. but I'm interested to know, do you create things sort of thinking about it as a series or are you just creating multiple things because you like to have options? It's kind of the latter. And because I teach some workshops that are focused on series, um, I've noticed that when I bring up the topic of series, people tend to default towards, let's make a group of pieces that all look the same in some respect and that they would hang together nicely on a wall. And and that tends to be limiting because they're kind of always worried about, you know, is this one very, you know, too much of a variation? Um, and so when I teach that, it, it really is teaching the method that I use, which is just start a bunch of pieces. And um, usually when I start a bunch of pieces, they're all the same size, usually. So I think of that as like a grouping. Um, and often I'm kind of, uh, working with similar visual issues. Uh, so, and just naturally you'll in working in groups of pieces, you'll work with similar colors and similar visual vocabulary. So I think that that happens kind of naturally. Um, I'm not trying to make some original statement with each and every piece. I'm really just trying to explore some visual stuff over the course of multiple pieces. So it's more this, this idea of of having options and being able to wreck half of them. 
Yeah, I think the first person who ever, many, many years ago, when I was sort of at the beginning of my art journey, um, Jen Mason, who was then the editor of Cloth, Paper, Scissors, said to me that she always, always works on uh, multiple pieces because then whenever you have a question, should I do this, the answer is yes, because you just do it to one and not the other, or you have two ideas you have, you know, four pieces divided up and you sort of therefore are always following the idea. Yes, that's exactly it. Yeah. Should I do this? Well, yes, of course you should. <laughs> oh, yeah, I sometimes have several groupings going on at once. And I guess I tend to group things by size. So I might have just two big canvases on the wall and then I have a bunch of 20 by 20 panels kind of leaning up against other pieces of furniture and I might also be working on 10 by 10 um, sheets of paper. So, but those would be like three different series. And I bounce around a fair amount um, just because I think work for me, working on multiple pieces kind of generates, generates ideas. Um, so if I'm not really enthused by one of my series, I'll work on another and then, then that might generate something I can, I can use in the first one. Well, I think if we go back to the notion, too, of not getting evaluative about your work, like one of the things that always has worked for me is that whenever I start to get frustrated or feel whatever, if you bounce to another project, it's like you leave the last one behind and then with some time you can come back and you see it differently because you're not as close. Yes, absolutely. And um, in my series workshops, I advise students to... uh, not work on one piece till they get stuck and then move on, but work on one piece to do two things or three things. That's my dog having her say. Um, like do two or three things and then move on. So it's not um, it's not a matter of like working until you don't know what to do next, but just moving it forward, couple of steps, and then move on and. Um, I found that when I stick with that in my own practice, I've kind of gotten out of the habit of getting stuck. I mean, I can't remember the last time I felt stuck on a piece, um, which, God, that's that's an achievement, <laughs> I'd say, because I think getting stuck is such a, you know, it's a normal part of the process. But this, is, this process has really worked to work on a bunch and, and don't even allow yourself to get stuck. Well, it sounds to me like teaching has really influenced the kind of or the methodology by which you make art. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah, I'd be absolutely nowhere with my if I didn't have my students. So thank you all for taking my classes. Um, yeah, it's really uh, worked for me because I tend to be um, kind of equally creative and analytical. Um, so I probably have a very balanced brain and the teaching part really allows me to explore the, the analytical side. Like how do I, how do I describe and make into an instruction, a thing that I do intuitively. And then in making that description and instruction, it helps inform what I do. So it's kind of circular and, and really productive. So when you're planning your classes, do Mm -hmm. you actually sit down and analyze, like, these are the things I want to teach and this is how I'm going to do it? No. I I can't remember the last time I planned a class. But I have um, 
you know, for each workshop, you know, it has a title and a description. So it has to meet the expectations of, of the students. So I usually refresh my memory by reading the description um, or I, it might be a new workshop, right? Write a new description. Um, and then I'll make myself a really fluid kind of outline um, with a whole bunch of tricks up my sleeve, a whole bunch of different exercises and assignments that can address the main points of the workshop. And then I choose from that bag of tricks uh, in response to the particular class. So if I show up to a class that I think is going to be mostly not very experienced because the workshop says beginners are welcome, and I end up with a class full of fairly practiced artists, <laughs> I'm going to give them a different set of assignments. Um, you know, or if the class is big or small, that can influence it. But it mostly is like the particular people that are there and how they respond to the first couple of assignments that informs what happens next. So um, I leave it really loose on purpose because uh, because I really want to address the specific needs of the group. Well, I would say it's also reflective of like... I think when you're an art maker of any kind, the more that you let go of the original plan, you know, I think most artists mm -hmm. go into it with some sort of idea and structure uh, when you're when you're creating art. But then it's like you sort of have to see what happens when you actually put the paint to canvas or the paper to paper, you know, paper. And it, the same thing is true then that teaching is a reflection of that whole process as well. Well, and isn't one of the challenges that you don't want all your students to walk out with something that looks exactly like yours? Well, so yeah. Yeah, I mean, if, if students are making work that looks just like mine, in, um, they haven't learned much. Uh, but I did have someone in a class who had taught a, a, an online class, and then one of her students posted their own work that looked exactly like the teacher's, and posted that she had shown it somewhere and sold it and the wow. team was devastated well maybe that's too strong a word she was she was quite <clears throat> moved by that in a not good way and she wasn't sure what to do and uh i looked up her course online and it looked like well that's kind of what you're teaching people to do and um you know, learning how to make someone else's work, you can certainly learn something from it. Uh, but if, if what you're doing is just, you're not taking it a step further to bring it into your own practice, then uh, you're not really taking full advantage of the workshop. And, you know, some of that responsibility would be the teachers to, to kind of maybe suggest ways of taking it into your own work. But also, you know, you know, when you're making work that is, derivative and you can learn a lot by copying someone else's work or learning a particular method of a particular artist um but you know when you have and when you haven't brought that into your own i role. actually disagree with that because i think that you know and maybe some other people know i i think there are people out there who don't know the difference oh is that right who genuinely think that if they made it with their own hands and uh -huh. they picked the colors and maybe uh -huh. picked the, the subject. You know, like I went to a class and I learned how to make a flower that was blue. So I went home and I made an apple that was green. So now it's mine. 
Uh-huh. Do you know what uh-huh. I'm saying? Yeah. And that they don't, they can't, they don't know the difference. And, and so, I mean, I guess I have two arguments here, which is one, I think somebody once told me never teach anything that you're not ready to let go of. Oh, huh. If you still Uh feel like it's work you're exploring, that it's not, it's not totally something you own yet, that you haven't fully explored it, that you're not ready for other people to make it, then don't teach it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the second part of it is, yes, I do a hundred percent agree on a philosophical level that the there's nothing wrong with copying but you need to find a way to truly make it your own that goes beyond like color and subject and to something deeper about personal style i just don't think that all people actually understand how to do that or what that even is yeah maybe i'm just sort of trusting or i've been lucky to have students that get it um usually my i find my students are are um more reluctant to make make work if they think it looks like mine they'll say oh but all i can think of is doing it just like you and so my my answer to that is well do it like me to get the techniques and the principle down and then move on from there and um and i think they usually get that but you know if someone is out there making work that's like mine fine you know what this makes me think of i always think about cooking uh-huh. And and so you'll have a recipe and people can copy your recipe exactly. It still won't turn out exactly like yours because mm-hmm. there's so many variables. But so as they become more comfortable with the technique and with the understanding of the different flavor profiles and things, then they can start mm-hmm. to experiment with it and make it theirs. And one of the best things I... I subscribe to the New York Times cooking app and mm-hmm. with every recipe they have comments that follow and in the comments mm-hmm. people critique the recipe and they say the different variations that they made and I actually find that as interesting as the recipe itself. Mm-hmm. I, I just think if you're not comfortable with the with the medium and the technique then you're much more hesitant to play around but that's exactly when you should play around so that you get comfortable with all that. Yeah. Or, or copy someone like a recipe and then get the sense of it and then take it somewhere else. I mean, people learn in different ways and um, I'm totally comfortable with the idea of people copying my work or copying someone else's work in order to learn. But um, I really emphasize the, in my classes, I really emphasize the, the idea that, you know, you do have to make at least 20 of them before they become your own. Um, so, yeah, but some people feel more strongly about it. And I guess, you know, I've seen sort of not very good knockoffs of my work on people's websites occasionally. And it's just it's just not it's not an issue with me. I mean, it's not like my work is worth loads and loads of money. It's not like it's, you know, it's, there's not a whole lot at stake. It's like, OK, if someone's making work that isn't really theirs, it's that's too bad. You know, hopefully they'll use it as a stepping stone and find their own, their own voice with it. Um, I guess. Yeah. I often find also that with food or clothing or movies or books, people are comfortable talking about what they do and don't like about it. Mm -hmm. But somehow with art, Mm -hmm. people are hesitant to give an opinion. They don't either. They don't have the vocabulary. They don't feel confident in their own opinions. They feel there's a right and a wrong Whereas just like food or clothing, it's what you like, you know, and 
Yeah, but on the other hand, you know, we all have experience with food and clothing, and we're all very familiar with food and with clothing. Um, but think of the the issue of, say, wine or beer. Um, you might sort of kind of like wine, and maybe you kind of like white wines, and so any white wine is fine. But if you really pay attention and start tasting wine and start getting a kind of vocabulary for describing um, the different flavor components, you become more appreciative of the of the variables and your tastes may become more uh, refined in that way. And I don't mean that's better. I mean, your tastes might might just have a, a richer, more complicated aspect. Well, here again, there's that's where the education comes in. Whether yeah. the education is taking classes or tasting a lot of wines, then you become more comfortable with figuring out what you do or don't like. And I just think people don't think of art as something where you can uh, become educated to the point where you feel confident giving your opinion. I don't know why that is. It's as if art is somehow some kind of high thing that only a rarefied few can talk about, appreciate, whatever, when in fact anybody can sit down and start to make things. Mm-hmm. No, that's true. And we, you know, we don't get much art education and we don't value it uh, like in our society, say, as much as we value sports, for example. I mean, people have enormously more sophisticated opinions and ideas about sports teams than I could even imagine. Um, yeah, I guess it's just a matter of where, you know, what your interests are and where your knowledge is. And certainly, you know, looking, especially at abstract art, just having some, some way of looking at it, some handle on it, some vocabulary can, can allow you to see it <clears throat> in a way that develops your own personal taste. So this is a perfect place for us to take a quick break for a quick message from a sponsor, and we'll be right back. Today's broadcast is sponsored by Van Gogh's Ear. The vibrancy of Van Gogh's paintings is only half his story. He frantically worked on several paintings at a time, experimenting with color and form. Time became his enemy as violent fits of madness and terrifying hallucinations consumed his being. Wrestling a fractured psyche with his determination to paint the beautiful, fragile world he saw, Van Gogh revealed his struggle to his brother Theo. Combining the letters Van Gogh wrote to his brother with chamber and vocal works by Franck, Faure, Chausson, and Debussy, Ensemble for the Romantic Century's Van Gogh's Ear brings the tormented creativity of Van Gogh to life. Playing at the Pershing Square Signature Center in New York City through September 10th. Podcast listeners, save 50% with code ADVENTURES at romanticcentury.org. So, speaking of abstract, I think one of the things that people are always um, confused about is, you know, what, what am I doing with my abstract painting? That's a question that I know a lot of people have. And I know you talk about it in some really great ways about how you're exploring uh, visual ideas. And I wonder if you would talk a little bit about um, the things you think about in creating abstract art. Um, 
visual ideas. What are those? <laughs> I do think in terms of these these individual elements, you know, lines, shapes, colors, um, value, texture, pattern. And when I see a representational painting, I mean, they all have the same thing. They're all abstract. So the sort of distinguishing factor about what we call abstract painting is that the painting subject may just be the abstract elements. They're not in service of um, referencing a particular object outside itself. Um, so, yeah, I really start playing with elements. I really start playing with, with uh, the materials and the elements. And I'm leaving technique out of that because I know a lot of people start by fooling around with a technique. And I'll do that occasionally, but mostly um, I'm not so interested in in the technique as in what what the technique does. So if I can make a really interesting mass of color over in one area um, of a piece, I'm not that interested in how I get there. Uh, let me try a few things and see, you know, see what is possible. Um, so that's where I start. And then I, I guess in general, I kind of go for a bit of chaos and contrast. And then I tend to try to focus in on something and make that kind of the, the statement of the piece by maybe downplaying some other areas or, or not. Um, and then it's much later after the piece is done and it's sat for a while that I may see some kind of reference in there or some, some other kind of expression that has to do with, with uh, ideas outside itself. I may see um, destruction or a coastline or particular kind of lichen on a rock or you know, some particular references, but that doesn't, that doesn't happen anywhere near the making of the piece. So that's interesting because I know some people approach it as I'm going to create a landscape or I want to tell a story about, you know, uh, this feeling I had or I want to whatever, but you're, you're really strictly working with visual elements. That's how I begin. Yeah. And some people can really effectively begin with, with a concept or a particular reference. Um, and then find the abstract language from there. Um, and so far I can't do that, but it's something I'd like to explore when I have my new studio with vertical walls. Ooh, um, let's talk about your new studio. Let's talk about your old studio first, maybe. Okay. My old studio is upstairs in a barn uh, in back of my house. So it's a separate building. It's under a gable ceiling and has knee walls. So there's not a whole lot of vertical space. I'm not very tall, but it's still a bit of a challenge. Um, I have great views front and back. I don't have any running water in the building. So that's a bit of a challenge, uh, especially, I don't know, in the winter, the studio's upstairs, right? So in the winter, I have to go downstairs, put on my boots, go into the house take off my boots, go use the bathroom or get my cup of tea or whatever I do for running water. Uh, and then put my boots back on and go back out to the studio. And I find that it's such an interruption <laughs> that, um, yeah, that's been, that's been kind of a, 
a, a drawback. Um, I mean, in some ways, it's nice to have a separate building, but um, the new studio is going to be. Are you anyway. dying, Mom? I'm sorry. I'm trying to mute my mic, but I can't figure it out. Push your push your ear, and it will mute it. I did. Oh well, apparently it won't. Ignore me. Okay, while you die, okay. we'll ignore you. <laughs> so, uh, anyways, that's been that's been the challenges of the old studio. Um, so in the new studio, it'll be a little bit bigger, but I, you know, it's not like I need a lot more square footage. I just need vertical walls, which will make a lot more of the square footage usable. And it'll be attached to the house, which at first I wasn't planning, but, um, I sat down with the zoning administrator last summer to see what I could do on my property, like in terms of building a new structure. Cause I have currently, I have my house, my studio building, the barn and the post office. Um, and it's not that big a property. So the zoning guy went through all the regulations to see, you know, if we could put a building here, 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 and it's half in a flood zone. So it turned out we could do an addition on the house. Um, so actually that has some real advantages. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to, to working in the new studio and I'll be able to have art dates and small workshops in the new studio so that's that's super exciting yeah yeah so the architect has done gorgeous gorgeous drawings um and the running gag is that i'm sleeping with the architect and the zoning administrator uh but they are both my husband so (laughs) (laughs) just to get that out there there you go you get you get a lot done that way uh, well, yeah. <laughs> so have anyway. you, are there things from the barn that you're going to take with you? Like you found that you actually liked about that space? I'm going to take my fixtures. I mean, my furniture, mm-hmm. but, uh, I think she meant incorporate are the things you're yeah, going to like elements of it. Like, you know, I, you know, accidentally you ended up having, you know, this kind of area here and having to divide it this way. And that's an idea that you're taking with you. Uh, no. Uh, the only thing I can think is on the front of the barn, um, on the second story on the front exterior, there is a shovel that's attached to the building and it's been here for a mm, couple of generations anyways. Uh, and the shovel apparently is there just so that people will ask, why is there a shovel attached to your building? So I could take the shovel down and put it on the front of my studio. But other than that, no, I mean, the space is sort of awkward, but it's been, it's been great for years and it's been great for working small, but I am working larger now and I've had to put these two, Um, yeah, it's, yeah, the space has become kind of a challenge and part of it is just, you know, my work has evolved. Uh, and part of it is just that I'm getting older and I'm less tolerant, tolerant of stuff like that. Like I want what I want and I want it now. So, um, well, it's good. Yeah, no, I, I always think that your space does influence the kind of work that you create. You know, they say like as yeah. as rents get more expensive, artists are working smaller or, you know, if you have a space that is very light, you tend to create a different kind of art than if it's very dark. Yes. And I want high ceilings. 
And I just love being in high ceiling spaces, whether they're studios or galleries or whatever. But someone told me that uh, there's been some research that that high ceilings actually does kind of stimulate your creativity. And boy, I believe it for me anyways. Um, I could really, I'm particularly sensitive to low ceilings and maybe everyone is, I don't know, but well, it's, know, it's the church it. theory, isn't it? I mean, I'm not particularly religious, but I walk into a church with that beautiful high ceiling and the light coming through and you just, you feel uplifted somehow. I think that, yeah, that's gotta be part of it. So yeah. So in the new studio, about two thirds of it is kind of cathedral ceilings and one third of it will have a loft space over it. Um, so that there will be some office space up there. And, uh, yeah, the architect just did a beautiful job of um, incorporating all the stuff that that I need and making it an, a, an attractive attachment to the house so that it doesn't look like it was just kind of stuck on. Um, so, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it, but I wish it would happen this fall. <laughs> I think we all have those dream studios in our minds, right, that will someday happen, and yours is really going to happen. Yeah, it's it's smaller than I would like, and I don't care. Um, I think that's the only thing. It's it's smaller than my dream studio, but tough. Right. <laughs> it has everything else. Right. Um, I, I mean, I sh- I'm gonna I'm hoping I can have like three or four uh, people besides myself in there to work together. I mean, I couldn't really have a, a real workshop, but I could have sort of small mentoring workshops. Um, I'm hoping. So we'll see. I think that'll be very cool. Um, I wanted to, one of the other reasons I asked you on the podcast is to talk about your book is I know you have published a number of books with traditional publishers, but I believe this one was self-published. Yes. And I'm very curious about the decisions that made into that and how you, I mean, it's early yet, but how you feel about that having done it Oh, it's not early at all. Have have you self-published? I have not. yeah, so you published with um, Interweave. Interweave. Yeah. Um, well, a few years ago, my editor from um, my previous publisher, which was Watson Guptill for the first couple of books, and then they got sold to Random House, and I don't know what all. Anyways, the, the maybe the third, I can't remember what the third book is, but the fourth book I did um, was clearly under a different imprint. Anyways, my editor from that, called me a few years ago and asked if I was interested in doing a book. And I said, not really. Uh, but she's working for another publisher now. And um, we kind of went ahead with it, with a proposal and she pitched it and got a no, like the publisher wasn't interested. And the reason was that my previous books hadn't sold that well. Hmm. And I thought I had not written a book since I started teaching. Um, and so now I have a following, and then I had a following. But when I wrote my first books, I didn't have much of a following. And then the one that's most popular that people are still, still, you know, wanting copies of, uh, Collage Journeys, it's out of print. So no wonder there's no sales. Right. <laughs> so, um, and at that, in the process of, of exploring the idea of doing another book with a publisher, uh, I was realizing that, you know, I was being a little bit, pushed to make it more broadly appealing. Um, And I felt like, no, I really have something to say that my students need to hear. 
and I say it in workshops. I tr um, and I'd love to be able to have a book that kind of re reviews the things that we do in workshops and the you know makes really focuses on the stuff I'm interested in now. Uh, and so I thought I just didn't I didn't really want to go with a publisher because I didn't want I wanted editorial control completely. So that was the first decision. And then I decided to design the book myself because I talked to a book designer and um, to do the whole book was just going to be out of reach. Like as a business decision, it, it wouldn't have been wise for a project of this scope. But she kindly agreed to set up the design in InDesign and coach me on the software. And so I did all of the the typesetting and, and image placement. Um, and she designed the cover, she designed the table of contents and kind of coached me um, as I was working. And then also she went over it when I was done with it and just made some minor changes to, to make the design hang together better. So, um, yeah, it was fun. I mean, it was intense work to be learning in design and designing a book at the same time and finishing writing the book at the same time. But, um, I've had a lot of new, uh, skill sets in there. <laughs> I was going to say you've written a number of books and do you feel that this one looks different or other than the other ones? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The other ones, <laughs> you know, they were written at a little different time in my life and I didn't have the kind of, uh, I don't know. I hadn't, I hadn't developed my, my teaching style or my painting style really. I mean, they're on the first ones on ceramics cause I was a potter and the second one is collage journeys. No second one is on collage collage with color. And I was just using that method of painting papers and using it as for cut paper collage in my design work. Cause I was doing freelance design at the time. Um, and the third one collage journeys, I was kind of in, in the middle somewhere and um just i for that one i relied heavily on interviewing a lot of artists and i think that's the strength of the book is that there's a lot of different artists that are kind of represented there so yeah and the fourth one is mixed media it's it's a projects book how to make this thing how to make that thing so um, yeah this one is much more sort of fundamentally about art concepts and art vocabulary and how has the response been to it i mean it's obviously more direct for you to be able to see your numbers and what people are buying and all that kind of stuff yes it's been fabulous of course i don't hear from the people that don't like it but <laughs> well thank goodness I, for that that's actually nicer than people who want nice? to say yeah. to you i hated your book by the way thank you so much yeah i mean even on the amazon reviews there are two that are that are less than stellar. And one of them was a woman that said she bought it, but she couldn't read it because the type was too light and small. And I, I wondered if she had gotten kind of a, a bum copy of it or something. But anyways, I addressed that and I, I sent her immediately a PDF and I said, I'm so sorry, but here, take this PDF. You'll be able to read it. Um, and she was very appreciative and um, wanted to take a workshop and all this. And then one person who commented on the quality of the paper, which 
it's 60 pound paper uncoated it's not ideal for this kind of book um but i looked i shopped around and uh any book I could have printed with coated paper stock was going to at least triple the cost of printing. And I would have to charge about 35 to $39 for it. If, um, if I used a better paper stock and I really wanted to keep it kind of affordable. Uh, so I went with this, which allows me to sell it at $25. Um, and even that I feel is kind of pushing it when you compare comparable books um, with a regular publisher, but it's, it, it works for me and it has to work for everyone and people seem to be buying it. So, so those were the two complaints and they were just about the, like the object itself. Um, but I, I'm hoping that there's a little niche in the self-publishing market for someone who could offer a good, a better paper stock without tripling the printing cost. So if anyone wants to start a self-publishing platform, <laughs> Well, I was going to say, you know, so I mean, I get your newsletter, which is uh -huh. why I knew to order the book, because I got you the newsletter saying you had a new book, and I thought, oh. And so I went to Amazon, and I ordered it, and it came in the mail, and, you know, it, you. it looks to me like any, you know, regular art book that I have. Um, uh -huh. And, of course, the content's great. Um, and I, the only thing I noticed is when I was actually looking for the book today on my bookshelf, it doesn't have the name on the spine. And I was like, why can't I find this book? Yeah. And then I finally figured that I out. I think that's because of the page count. Like if it's a certain width, uh, you just do a wrap cover without a, uh, without a spine. Who knew? And if you do it heavier than such that the spine is thicker, then uh, you get to design a spine as well. So um, I think my, I have two more books in the, down the pike. One of them is sort of the part B of this book, which it was going to all be one book, but now it's two books. And that is on art practice, um, how to develop and sustain a healthy art practice. Um, and the other one, I think I'm going to do first cause it, it'll be easier. And it's just going to be a book of collage papers and then maybe 10 or 20 little assignments of doing collages with the, with the papers um, for learning some basic art concepts. And so it's really geared towards beginners uh, and they, and it's just collage. So there's no real technique involved and the papers are right there. So that sounds like uh, a great idea and really exciting. I I'm sort of excited about that one because, because then I could make like, follow-up books that are just the papers and that 60 pound uncoated paper that they use at create space is actually great for collage paper yeah um, and i also think like you know a lot of people take their art books anyway to you know stables or something to have it you know bound spiral or whatever so it's more of a workbook uh -huh. there are lots of reasons that it's great not to necessarily have the same papers yeah yeah. I recently went to a quilting class with um, Katie uh, Pasquini Massapust, um, and <laughs> she had bought the rights to her books that were no longer being published and self-published them and brings them with her to workshops to sell because, of course, just like you, her students want those books, but they can't mm -hmm. get them anymore. And she thought, you know, I mean, nowadays anyway in the sort of uh, craft or art book publishers are not you know getting behind books with marketing they're depending on you the author to do the marketing 
Right. So if you're going to mm-hmm. do it anyway, was the, what she said to me in class, it's like, why not, you know, make yeah. the majority the of the benefit. money than yourself? Right. Yeah. I mean, that was one thing I, I was thinking of for the, for the self-publishing, you know, this publisher that, I mean, a publisher would probably do reasonably well with one of my books because I do marketing anyways. And at this point, there are a fair number of people that want my book. On the other hand, <laughs> um, they want to make it more broadly appealing and they have to, to make their bottom line work. But for me, if I make more money per book, I can totally live with a more focused, though smaller um, clientele. Um, so fewer people are gonna buy my book on the other hand, it's really written very much for them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, so I thought just the difference in the amount of royalty you make on, you know, per book sale um, made it so I, I really felt comfortable writing to a, a very particular audience. And that's, you know, that's one of the benefits of self-publishing. You can, um, because you make more money per book, uh, you know, you don't need a huge, a huge, uh, readership to make, to make it work. Um, you know, cause it's print on demand. It's not like there's thousands of copies sitting in a warehouse somewhere that are going to get, you know, tossed in the landfill. There just aren't books until, until people order them. So I love that aspect of it. I think it's exciting to imagine the possibilities of print on demand and to see beyond the traditional book, which is, I, I think, what you're doing when you say, you know, let's make a book where people rip out pages and do stuff. Or even if you think about the success of, like, Carrie Smith's um, uh, Wreck This Journal, you know, that was about people buying a book and then writing in it, stepping on it, painting on it, you know. And I know that when I wrote my book, I had talked to publishers about wanting to do some interactive stuff. And the answer was kind of, well, that doesn't really work for us. Yeah, but you can make it work for you. Yeah, but you can make it work for you. And that's really exciting. Yeah, I think uh, Carla Sondheim, who offered this uh, year-long class that's like one short video a day for a year. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's like ongoing. Um, She published through CreateSpace a blank book that you could use as your workbook for that class. And it wasn't required. She said you can do it in, in whatever book you want or if you want this one. It's just a blank book with numbers on each page from 1 to 365. And it's got a Carla Sondheim illustration on the cover. And it's darling. I mean, I just ordered it because I wanted to see it. And it's fabulous. So it really offers um, a lot of possibilities. Someone, someone else I know did like their class handout on CreateSpace. I mean, it, it doesn't have to be op- available to the public. But it's a pretty inexpensive and efficient way of printing a document. So you can do a document that's, um, oh, I don't know how small you can go, maybe 20 pages or something, um, that's just pamphlet bound and just have it done at CreateSpace. And it's like better quality. And well, I don't know if it's better quality, but certainly cheaper than you could have it done uh, elsewhere. Yeah. I, so I did this hundred day project where, you know, you do something every day for a hundred days 
Mm -hmm. um, and I made all these faces and uh, a lot of people asked me if I was going to like publish a book or something of it. So then I went and I looked into like blurb books and all these other kind of photo books and they were unbelievably expensive. And then I stumbled into Amazon's self-publishing and suddenly it was like, oh, wow, this would actually be a really easy way to get this out there. Yeah, I, I recommend it. I mean, there's a lot of steps. Not everybody wants to do it. Uh, you work hard and you figure out all the all the hoops you have to jump through and, and then you jump through them. Um, and so, you know, for you, it would be fabulous. Uh, it's, it's not super easy. It is very um, technical. There's a bunch of different steps, but, it, but all the information is there. And if you're willing to kind of like slow down and learn all the stuff, um, and not expect it to be quick, uh, then yeah, it's totally a fabulous way to go, I think. And I was lucky. I had a, a friend who had published a couple of things on create space. Um, Lucie Duclos, she has a couple of coloring books available. Um, and so she kind of helped me through some of that process and my book designer as well. So it was worth like hiring help to, to help me through the process. Actually, this paper would be really good for a coloring book. I never thought about that. Oh, yeah. Lucy's coloring books are just great. She has a beautiful illustration style. Um, yeah, so I recommend them. You know, there's a whole other podcast here for the future about how to uh, create a business in multiple ways that you can do it and in the art field because it's not just, you know, selling your paintings. There's just mm -hmm. a whole lot of other ways that you can make a business out of being an artist. I think that would be an interesting podcast. Yeah. Yeah, that might be think, Julie. Yeah, I mean, I think I think people are always I often get asked by people like, you know, how do you do this or how I'm mean, sure you do too, Jane, like, how do I do this job? And the oh, answer yeah. is like, I have no idea. Like, You know, everybody sort of makes it up their own way, which is the exciting and scary and exciting and scary part of it. Yeah, I think that's true. And um, I think so, so I get often asked, maybe not so much anymore, because I've really been discouraging to people, but <laughs> <laughs> I would like to know what that means. Well, people have asked, like, how do you do online classes? And so at first, you know, some years ago when they were fairly new to me, I was very excited about sharing that information because I like to share stuff when I'm excited about it. But then I found, you know, I'd invite someone to tag along on my online class or, you know, show them how, you know, the, all the mechanisms I use to do that. And then I get the impression that, oh, they thought it was like a quick and easy, and it's not a quick and easy. It's a long struggle to figure out how you're going to do it and then learn all the tools. Um, and so they kind of like, oh, I guess not. You know, like they get discouraged by the amount of work it is. Yeah. And so I think there's some misconceptions about how much work it is to you know, do online classes or teach in general or make a living as an artist or whatever. The, the, the kind of paradigm is that the ideal is to make a living by selling your work. And, oh, God, I would hate that. <laughs> um, you know, it's not for everybody. I mean, for some people, that would be the ideal. But, God, I love being out in the world of people who are making art and teaching and taking classes and doing the online stuff and all the interactive things that kind of keep it, um, 
keep it surprising and fun and community oriented. Well, like you were just saying too, like teaching has influenced the way that you make art. You would be a different artist now if yeah. you weren't a teacher. Yeah. And another thing is licensing. I mean, people ask, well, how do you license your work? It's like, oh God, I so don't recommend it. Um, and so people stopped asking me. Uh, and the, the fact is I do license my work, but, um, but I don't go after it. You know, I don't, I don't seek out licensing opportunities. Um, and that's cause I did freelance work for 10 years and I, I made my living seeking out licensing opportunities and it was, it was so unpredictable. <laughs> um, so, you know, if licensing contracts come or licensing inquiries come my way, I'm fine with it. But uh, it's another thing that people think is easy money, easy money. Like, oh, it's just royalties. You don't have to do anything. But, you know, at this point, I don't do it unless it is easy money. But most of it isn't easy money. <laughs> well, when a licensing offer comes to you, it's because they want what you do. But when you're yeah. seeking licensing, oh, then yeah. you have to adapt. To what the manufacturer wants, which is a whole different ball game. Well, the other thing is, then you have to compete with the other twenty thousand freelance artists that they're looking at for maybe one or two products. <laughs> and right. so, yeah, there's like a lot of freelance artists, and it, the world of that is a little bit. Well, it's a lot different from that of fine art. It's a little more um, kind of secretive and competitive rather than than sharing. Um, so I was very glad to stop doing that. I mean, I had a good run of it for sure, but it just became so unpredictable that I just didn't want to live with that anxiety. So, well, there's also, I I was going to say, there's also so much of like when you create for licensing or when you create work for a gallery where somebody is asking you for specific things that you may or may not be interested in creating, you know, if a gallery has enormous success with one particular kind of work, they may not want you to evolve as an artist. They may want to keep getting that kind of work in that color palette. Yeah, I've heard that. I haven't had experience with that myself. Um, I have my work represented at at one commercial gallery in Middlebury, Vermont. It's Edgewater Gallery. And uh, I've only begun with them this this year. I was kind of, um, I took my time looking for galleries and looking within myself to see when it was I felt comfortable putting my work in a commercial gallery. Uh, just because of that, because I've heard from many artists that, you know, the gal- galleries will want to kind of narrow down what you do. And uh, so far, they're doing really well with my work. And the gallery director said the other day, she said, you know, if you made more pieces sort of like this, I think we'd do well with them. But she was very careful to say, I don't mean to be telling you what to do. You do what you want to do. But just so you know. Right. <laughs> and. So that's information, but I don't, you know, like I, I don't know if I can, I mean, I mean, I don't feel compelled to, um, to go with that direction. Um, I think they're just as interested in seeing whatever my new work is as I am. So, um, so I feel really comfortable in that relationship. Which is good. I think that's like anything. When somebody's selling your work, that's a deeply personal thing. And they have to uh, want to talk about it. And you have to like the way they talk about it. Yeah. Do you have do you have work 
in galleries? I do not. I, uh, it was interesting to me when you were talking about, I have trouble letting go of my work. I'll just put that flatly, boldly (laughs) down there. Um, and I, it's something I've just begun to do to even just sell off a few originals here and there. Um, and I, you know, occasionally people have asked about commissions and stuff like that. I just have a really hard time letting go of my work. It's something that I'm trying to get better at and oh. I think that uh, it's, it's a goal of mine to, to let things go and to move on there will always be another painting uh-huh. I suppose uh-huh. but that would also be why like my house is you know filled with my work and I love it but I recognize the fact that maybe I need to start letting go <laughs> of some things occasionally uh-huh. what about the fact that my house has none of your art yes i need to learn to like i have said to you that you can come over and take something that you like i'm just saying I'm just saying it's true but i mean but that's an indication if even like i haven't you know handed work over to my mother it's probably i probably i need to practice letting go eh? uh-huh. <laughs> yeah i'm just um <clears throat> delighted to have a an art career in which there is no financial pressure on my work to sell i mean i do sell it but i make sure like that i'm that i make enough to live on on my teaching and books and whatever other you know little sources there are there because i just don't (laughs) i don't want to be in the position of feeling of i mean i think i think the idea that oh this piece would it sell or not I just don't want that voice in my head when I'm painting. Yeah. So, um, because it is the uh, the magnification of the social media lens, which is to say, when people like it on social media, therefore it's good. When people don't like it on social media, therefore it's bad. Which is the same thing as when people buy it, it's good, and when they don't, it's bad. Which, of course, neither of those is true, but it feels like it sometimes. Yeah, sometimes when I've posted a lot on Instagram, I start getting and I I get the Instagram lens in my head. And so I kind of stopped posting on Instagram um, and and I'll go back to it, but I have to find a medium where it's like, I'm either posting a ton or I'm not posting at all. And I need to find, um, find a medium there where, you know, I can post stuff to share it, but not, not be checking it three times a day to see how many people liked it, you know? Um, so yeah, that kind of putting work out there uh, really leaves you open to, uh, kind of thumbs up or thumbs down without much kind of without much interaction or nuanced conversation about it and that can influence the way you work and I'd rather I'd rather just not let that in quite so much yeah it's hard to keep it out of your brain and this is the thing um, that's always so hard to remember but you you are the only one who can judge, you know, your own work in the end because you're the, and if you let other people do it, then you can't create without them. And that's kind of a terrifying idea. Yeah. That's kind of an interesting take. The other thing too, is that, is that one has a tendency to always think that the one critical person is so right. Whereas the 400 (laughs) people who like your work, what do they know? You're absolutely right. Yeah. That's and it's always interesting to show your work to someone who appreciates it and get their take on it, like get some dialogue about it. But those are people that you pick and choose that are trusted, that you understand, they that they understand what you're doing. Um, and who also potentially yeah. know how to talk about art, who can use some of those words, the language things to say, this line is confusing to me, why it's here, instead of saying, 
I don't, I don't like it or, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Always useful. Well, I know we said we were going to keep this podcast short, but if you can believe it, we've managed to talk for an hour. An hour and six. Yeah, that just be my link. That that may just be how you roll. But uh, if people do want to find you online, Jane, where are the places? I know you mentioned your Instagram account. Uh, yeah, that's probably not the best place because I don't keep it all that current. But uh, JaneDaviesStudios.com is where you can find everything. Um, there's links from that site to my gallery site, which is just kind of a portfolio of my work and to my blog and my Facebook and all that kind of stuff. So janedaviesstudios.com is the place to find it. Great. Uh, and as always, you can find me at balzerdesigns.typepad.com and do leave us your comments or questions. Um, as also the podcast can be found at balzerdesigns.com backslash arting, A-R-T-I-N-G. We'd love to hear from you. And if you tweet about the show, please use the hashtag Arting Podcast. That's all one word, A-R-T-I-N-G-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. And thanks so much for listening and for subscribing. We'll see you the next time on the Adventures in Arting Podcast.